Hello. Glad to be with you here today and continue looking at our study in Genesis. And greetings too to the West Campus. Glad we can all be together and continue to look in God's Word. Um, I'm Lynn Kitchens and I'm part of the teaching team. So I wanted to ask you a question today, a couple questions. How do you like to arrange your day? And like years ago, I just have to tell you, many years ago, these day planners were really big and so everybody carried around as if they could fill every page of this giant thing, figuring out what their day's gonna be. And now I realize we have these smartphones that are smarter than us. So they keep us organized throughout the day. So maybe you're like me, you have your things to do list, you have your things to get to list, you have your things I hope I can get to, and then in the middle of it all, some things happen, and do they negate your entire list? Okay, and so then your day turns out being nothing like you planned it to be at all. So here's my next question, how do you like to arrange your life? You know, sometimes we make the mistake of arranging our life the same way that we build our days. We let other things take priority that we really didn't plan for that to happen. Our goals and our hopes, they get kind of murky and lost. Other things in the world take up our time and hold our hearts. We look up, we realize, I'm not really planning my life at all. Other people are, things are. Other obligations are doing that for me. And the danger with that is this. At the end of our lives, we might look back and realize with sadness that our life didn't turn out to be anything like we wanted it to be. And I really can't imagine anything sadder than leaving the world with that kind of realization. Not living the life that God designed for me to live. And here's the great thing. God has given us a formula. A simple formula to make sure that doesn't happen. And here it is. Put him first. That, that's really the formula. Put him first each day. Build a life that matters, blesses you, blesses others. Put God first and fulfill the goal for every believer, and that is to, to die having brought glory to their maker. Glory to God. Build your life based on your relationship with God. I read this quote. God must be first at all costs. Divine revelation is the foundation of all true life, and divine guidance is its only safety. In the beginning, God must dominate every life that seeks to live to his glory. It's a profound mistake to think that we need only concern ourselves with God's will in the great events or in the great crises in our life. There is nothing too trivial for God's guidance, nothing too small for the need of his grace and his power. First comes the altar. Our worship, our devotion, our commitment, our obedience, we build our life on that. First comes the altar. And you know what? You and I both know other things try to climb up on our altar. We have to be diligent and push them off. 
It takes observing. It takes watching. It takes looking. It takes discipline. And you know, God knew there would be other things that try to get up on our altar and take first place in our lives. And he also knew blessings would follow us when we keep him as first thing in our life. And because of that, he actually commands us to love him. And Jesus called it the greatest command of all. Look on your verse sheet, Mark 12. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay, I'm gonna put a quick plug in for getting to the heart of God. If you want to have some things explained to you about that verse and you want to grow in how to love him in those ways, come to getting in the heart of God next Saturday right here. It's going to be this time of worship, praise as we listen to April's music, and then testimonies and teaching about this verse. So I hope you come. It's going to be awesome. Okay, remember the story of Mary and Martha? We all like that story because it's fun to remember and it reminds us of so much. They love Jesus. They had him over for a meal. Martha is busy in the kitchen, cooking up something, stirring the pots, looking around and seeing her sister Mary sitting on the floor at the feet of Jesus, not doing anything. So she comes around. She finally tells Jesus complains about the fact that she's doing all the work. And here's what Jesus said to her. He taught her a life lesson, Luke 10. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing's necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. First comes the altar. Mary knew that. Mary made a good choice. Psalm 34 tells us this. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. An incredible promise. Lack no good thing. So in these chapters today, we're going to witness what it's like when we put God first. What's the outcome? And we're also going to see the outcome of when we don't put God first. What happens there? We're going to begin with Abraham. Turn to me to chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him many sons and many of their sons. See, I'm not going to read those names. (laughs) She had six sons and they had their own children. Verse 5, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. It seems that Abraham married Keturah after Sarah died, and Chronicles lets us know she was a concubine. She was of uh, lower status than Sarah. She bore Abraham six sons in 38 years who had their own children, and they would become ancestors of the Arab tribes east of Canaan. And we realize Abraham was indeed the father of many nations, just as God said he would be. 
But Abraham knew Isaac was the son of God's covenant promise, and these half-brothers might have gotten confused about that and the issue of inheritance. They may have posed a threat to Isaac's calling, so Abraham knew these sons of Keturah must be sent away. And did you notice in verse 6, it doesn't just say he sent them away. He sent them away from Isaac. That was his plan. He gave them gifts. He sent them east. This also kept them from occupying the land that was promised to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. He did this before he died so there would be no doubt about it. Abraham followed God's purposes by demonstrating with these actions that Isaac was his rightful heir And he ensured that the covenant blessing as God planned it would pass to Isaac. Look at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Ber Lahairoi. Okay, we should feel sad here, but we don't. It's hard to feel sad. We're so happy to have someone who led a life like Abraham. There is victory in a life well lived. There's a divine joy that blesses everyone. And you all know what I mean when you go to funerals of people who walked with the Lord. There is a victory there. We had a dear friend die oh, over a year ago, and Ted did the funeral here, and he was... Um, Someone who walked with God and served God ever since he was a teenager. And he was well-loved. And they ended the funeral in a really different way. They put his picture on these screens. And he's standing on top of a mountain. He loved to climb mountains. And he's on the top of the mountain. And he's doing this. Like a victory. And we see him from far away. And then the song starts playing somewhere over the rainbow. Dreams really do come true. And the camera just gets closer and closer and closer through the whole song until it ended on Lee's face. And we were thinking, dreams really do come true. What was his dream? To be with God. And it was true. And it was a victory. And it blessed us. God is also blessed when his servants die. Look at Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so Abraham died full of years. That means satisfied with life. He lived long years of faith and fellowship with his maker. Now he's going to be gathered to his people. That means those who died before him. That means there's life after death. We know Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, and that faith was also going to bring him in the presence of his God. And just like Lee, that's what Abraham was looking forward to. Look at Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, Abraham served a perfect God. Abraham was not a perfect man, and I take hope in that. I hope you all take hope in that too. But his obedience to God's calling was his priority. That's what he built his life on, and that's what brought him satisfaction. For 100 years, Abraham was led along by the promises of God. First came the altar. And we know he loved God and put him first because he was always building literal altars everywhere that he went as well. Isaac was born and he lived another 75 years. What a blessing from God. And then he lived 35 years after Isaac married Rebekah. And he actually lived 15 years and was able to get to know his grandsons, Esau and Jacob. So this chapter is not in chronological order, so I'm going to let you know that so you don't get really confused right now. He actually, like the verse we just read, actually got to know Esau and Jacob. But I want us to look down at the cave where they laid Abraham and we see blessings surrounding this cave. First of all, it's a blessing he gets to be buried next to Sarah, that God's sovereignty led him to this cave to purchase years earlier. And we look closer, and who's burying him? Both Isaac and Ishmael. We know Ishmael was not to receive um, the covenant promises of God, and yet here he is, out of his love for his father, there's a peace between Isaac and Ishmael. And then verse 11 tells us, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Abraham's gone. God's program to bless the world did not go with him. It continues through Isaac. The God of Abraham would be the God of Isaac. And here's the best thing for Abraham. He died knowing that. He died believing that. When God is first in our life, we will die satisfied and we will truly rest in peace. I started not to write that because we all hear that saying and think rest in peace, rest in peace. Did you ever think about how beautiful those words really are? How many people don't die and rest in peace? Abraham did. Satisfied with God. When God is first in our life, we also pass on the blessing of God to those around us, which Abraham did. Now let's look at the birth of his grandsons, the miraculous birth of Esau and Jacob. Isaac was settled in, it's hard for me to say this, Bir Lahairoi. This was a good place to be. Prayers of faith were answered here. Here's where Hagar went to talk with God about her unwanted son, Ishmael. Here's where Isaac meditated in a field waiting for Rebekah to be brought back by his servant. And this would be the place where Isaac would pray for a child and God would answer with twins. And this is the place where Rebekah would go to God to understand more about these twins. And that story is recorded here in verse 19. So let's look at that. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. He fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, 
Let's go on to verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, for 20 years, Rebekah and Isaac wanted a child, and for 20 years, Jacob, I mean, Isaac prayed. He knew the covenant promise. He knew his descendants would be part of the covenant. So he went to God to pray for the barren state of his wife, Rebecca. And this would be a great test for Isaac. 20 years of waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. What's going on? I'm sure he wondered, where's God? But he persevered in his prayer because God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. God had a purpose here. I think God delayed the fulfillment of his word so Isaac and Rebekah would place their hope not in the natural process of birth, but would place their hope in a supernatural act of God. So that when these children were born, they would understand the obvious power was in a divine action of God. And as in Isaac's own birth, it was God's gracious intervention that brought the birth of Esau and Jacob. And they recognized that they came from God, that God brought them children for his plans and for his purposes. So Rebecca conceived, but there was constant struggling in her womb. And that word struggling means um, crushing. It means oppressing. So this was an uncomfortable nine months for poor Rebecca. I think it was physically really hurtful. It was a serious conflict within that signified a serious conflict to come. Like her husband, though, she went to the Lord in prayer and he answered her. I love that in their hurt and confusion, both of them went to the altar first and God was waiting to bless them. Prayer was established as the means by which God chose to grant his promised blessing. So here the Lord gives Rebecca an oracle describing the destiny of her offspring that I read. First of all, he tells her, get ready, you're having twins. And guess what? They're really two nations. That had to be scary. She's having two sons who would be founders of great tribes and nations that would oppose each other, which became true years later. Of course, Jacob as the head of Israel, that's his nation, and Esau's nation would be Edom. And Israel and Edom fought continuously. So this little family birth 
would have far-reaching effects in natural relations. And then God told Rebecca, the older would serve the younger. Now, this was not natural. This is not what was done. The younger should serve the older, but God wanted to display the sovereignty of his grace. Look what we learn about God in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's promised line would belong to Jacob, not because of Jacob's will or any merit, but because of God's divine election. And divine election and divine choice is a fact whether we understand it or not. And I don't know that God ever thought we totally understand it. We just know who God is and we trust in his ways. Um, when we study young Jacob, you're going to see it's quite obvious that the God's divine choice had nothing to do with Jacob's righteousness. Look at Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And Paul says that's a reality in our lives as well. Look at Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when we see these children were born, we see they're already struggling. Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel. It's like he's trying to pull him back so he can get out first. <laughs> Esau was first. He's hairy and he's a brown red like he's wearing a little cloak. He's more like a rugged little animal uh, than a little boy. They named him Esau, which means red. He would like red stew in a minute as well. And his nation, Edom, would also mean red. And it also anticipated this sort of rugged nature of Esau. And the nature of Edom also, which would become Israel's enemy. So hanging on to the heel, Jacob was born. He was named Jacob to remember this really unusual uh, action that he's holding on to this heel. It means, Jacob means, take by the heel or trip up, or defraud. Uh, sometimes this word is used in passages to mean opposition, or an attack from behind, which was going on in the womb. It is also a wordplay on the words, may God protect, which sound like the word heal, and maybe Rebecca and Isaac had that in mind as well. The names were chosen to reflect the baby's appearance and their activity at birth, but in both cases, the names are pretty ominous, anticipating the natures and the activities of Jacob and Esau and their descendants. One theologian says this, Esau's name was allotted to him on account of his severity, which even from earliest infancy assumed a manly form. But the name Jacob signifies that this giant Esau, who would vainly strive in his boasted strength, had nevertheless 
been vanquished. These boys grew up, and we picture Esau. He's outside, tramping through the woods. He's hunting things. He's got animals on his back. He comes into his house. We picture him sitting at tables, eating giant turkey legs. When we think about Jacob, we picture him sitting by a fire, reading a book. Happy to be at home. Esau was his father's favorite, Jacob his mother's favorite. But we do need to take this into account. There's a possibility that Rebekah um, preferred Jacob because it reflected her belief in the oracle of God, that this was God's divine election. And if that's the case, Isaac in his older age was getting insensitive to the plans of God by favoring Esau just because he loved to eat the game that he brought home. So while Isaac's focusing on his physical appetite and getting satisfied that way, he may have lost direction regarding his spiritual appetite, and that would be to honor God's choice of Jacob. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, well, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and he drank, and he rose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Did you notice that the hunter is the hunted in this story? The skillful hunter Esau fell into a better hunter's trap, Jacob's trap. Esau became prey to his own selfish appetites. And in this little episode, the inner hearts of these brothers are exposed and the divine oracle begins to express itself in their lives. Esau, the red man, was ruled by his physical appetite for red stuff, stew. Jacob, the heel grabber, cunningly overtook his brother and gained the birthright. The birthright included temporal blessings, but also spiritual blessings, a double portion of the inheritance. It gave the holder the precedence of being the leader of the family. But most importantly, the possessor of the birthright was the spiritual priest and head of the family. Jacob knew this. Jacob cared about this. Jacob had probably been told about this oracle from God, and so he saw great value in the birthright. Like Esau, Jacob too was craving something, but he was craving something of worth. On the other hand, we realize the birthright had absolutely no value to Esau. He didn't have regard for the things of God. His life was entirely earthbound. He was intent on present gratification, future blessings, were intangible and unimportant and probably unreal to him. So did you notice what a drama guy Esau is? He comes in, oh my gosh, help me, feed me. I'm exhausted. I might die if I don't eat something. 
And so he chooses a bowl of lentil stew over the privileges and the promises of God. Here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say about that decision. Hebrews 12, let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Um, Godless there is also interpreted as profane. What this word means is outside the temple. It refers to a plot of ground that was outside of the temple that people would trample back and forth, but it was away from the sacred enclosure, outside of the sacred enclosure, a great illustration of Esau. On the other hand, we can applaud Jacob's appreciation of the value of the birthright. And someone said this morning, we can also appreciate a man who could cook. Yes. He applauds, uh, is happy about the birthright, but we can't applaud how he manipulates the situation. Jacob behaves, is it up to him to fulfill the promises of God? He can't really trust that the God who gave the oracle is going to be able to accomplish the oracle. So he takes it into his own hands and he actually spends years running ahead of God, trying to do things his way, which you're going to be studying. Here's our lesson. Those who deeply desire spiritual possessions should never try to attain them their own fleshly ways. Remember Sarah pushing Hagar into the arms of Abraham? When this episode ends, we have four actions from Esau that are very telling. He ate, he drank, he rose, he went his way, his way, his way, not God's way. He went on. Satisfied physically was enough for him. I read about a war many years ago in the East After a very long time, one of the army who'd been deprived of water through most of the battle finally surrendered to the enemy for lack of water. After they had drunk from the river, the commander's cry was recorded in history because he stood up and yelled to his little group of men, comrades, for what little pleasure have we lost an incomparable good? And sort of when I read that, I wanted Esau to get up from the table, realize what he's done, and said, oh, no, for what little pleasure, a bowl is too, have I lost an incomparable good. But instead, we see him coldly get up, walk out to the door, and guess what? He walked into another situation where he left God out. Look at verse 34 of chapter 26. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. He disregarded God. He disregarded God's covenant. He disregarded the example of his father, who married God's choice for a wife, and he marries two Hittite women, because that's what he wanted. That's what would satisfy His physical appetite, his fleshly appetite, what he wants, he takes. And because of that, he became entangled with the pagan residents of the land. And those were the people who God had established to be permanent enemies of Israel. 
So to sum up the story of Isaac and Rebecca and these twins, we have to first recognize that the gracious hand and the powerful hand of God both creates and elects. He answered the prayers of Isaac and Rebecca for their children. That's because his promises are carried out through faith in his supernatural work, and Isaac and Rebecca had that faith. That's why they went to the altar first with their concerns about children. So when God is first in our life, we have a powerful advocate. The lesson we learn from Jacob applies to those who may want God to be first, but they bypass the altar to manipulate things in the flesh. To keep God first in our life, we must trust him to fulfill his promises in his way, in his timing, like we had that wonderful testimony this morning. From Esau, we learn that when God is not first, living to satisfy our appetites inevitably leads to despising things of value. We don't even recognize them anymore. But the divine covenant abides. Let's move on to chapter 26. Okay, how many of you, when you read that chapter, thought you were having a deja vu? If you've been coming all these weeks, you're thinking, this is the story of Abraham and Sarah with Abimelech in the same situation. Well, we know it can't be the same Abimelech in the uh, Isaac and Rebecca story because these events were 90 years apart unless Abimelech was really, really old. But it's also possible that the name Abimelech was a title they used, like the title Caesar or Pharaoh. So let's look at 26, verse one. There was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I'll be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give these lands, all these lands. And I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Abraham's gone. What would happen to the promises? God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. He would do that through Isaac and his descendants. He transferred the Abrahamic covenant of land, seed, and blessing to his son, Isaac. Okay, so how many of you have ever run in a relay race where you pass a baton and any of you? Isn't that fun? I used to love doing that, and I loved trying to run and catch up to the person in front of me as, you know, reaching out as far as I could and getting that baton in their hand, and I sort of can envision Isaac reaching out, getting a good hold of the covenant and the promises that have passed from Abraham's hands into his, and the obedience of Abraham brought great good to those that were going to be running in the race. True faith obeys God's words. And did you see God recognizing that in, in the last verse there? He says, Abraham obeyed. He kept my charge. He kept commandments, statues, and laws. These were words that would describe the law of God in the future. 
Israel's law. And so we learn Abraham was obeying those laws even before they were written. There are three things to recognize in this promise we just read, that it would be fulfilled because God swore that it would be fulfilled. It was guaranteed. And you might notice for the first time, the word land is broadened and it's called all these lands. It becomes plural and it's referring to all the territories possessed by all the tribes living in the promised land. And thirdly, the promise now included the presence of God. So would Isaac pick up the baton in obedience? Verse six lets us see. God says, don't go to Egypt. Sojourn here, verse six says that Isaac settled in Gerar. Yes, he would obey. Now, Isaac is a lot like us. Sometimes we do well until fears get in the way. So he does what his dad did. He claims Rebecca was his sister, so the Philistines won't kill him to get her. And this is another example of how fear can mock faith. Now, I don't think Rebecca was quite as beautiful as Sarah because it said Sarah was beautiful and Rebecca was attractive. <laughs> so maybe Isaac didn't really need to worry. <laughs> uh, Deb and I were talking, it reminds us of that song many years ago. I don't know who will remember this. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. They should have known that song. Abimelech saw them together, realized Rebecca was more than a sister, warns everyone, don't touch them. God is protecting the future offspring of Isaac and Rebecca here. But Abimelech rightly rebukes Isaac and says, what is this you've done to us? You could have brought guilt upon us. And he was absolutely right. You know, our selfish deceptions may give occasion for others to sin, and it makes them guilty before God because of our original sin. And how sad that a godless man had to come and teach that to the man of God. But God is faithful to us even when we lose our ways at times. Look at verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions, flocks, herds, servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now they had stopped and filled with earth all the wells his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac finally, go away from us. You are much mightier than us. But the difficulties of Isaac would be met by these divine blessings of God. Isaac sowed, God blessed, he reaped a hundredfold, pointing to the fact that he was the true recipient of Abraham's blessings. He was so rich that the Philistines would be out mowing their lawn, looking over, and were so jealous of everything going on over by Isaac's area. So then they ran around sort of like children. Let's fill up all the wells that his dad did. I just pictured little kids running out with their little buckets and shovels. Wells were really important, and you can see why with that many people and animals that need water. And um, they were also evidence of divine blessing, and also when you made a well, it was claiming that you owned that territory. 
As Isaac went from well to well, Abimelech told him to leave, and Isaac began a really discouraging journey for water and wells. He would dig a well his father dug. He'd give him the name his father had given it. The Philistines would quarrel, fill it time and time again, quarreling with Isaac's men. But we never see Isaac retaliating. Kind of remarkable. He named the filled wells dispute and opposition. And I even thought here, we might wonder what Jacob would do if he was in this situation. I was promised this land. How can I get these people off of it? I mean, he might have started a war. Not Isaac. Facing opposition, he patiently believed. God is faithful. God is good. And here's how we know that. Look at verse 22. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac saw this room enough place to come from God's gracious hands. And Isaac let God work out the trial that he faced. And because of that, I think his thirst was quenched in more ways than one. I think he knew God in some new ways. God blessed his faith, calmed his fears. Look at verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I'm with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and Isaac's servants dug a well. I think when God is first in our life, we can expect a blessed future of his presence and of his provision. Even when dry land's all around us, I'm not saying we're not going to have hardships when I say we're going to be blessed. There are inner blessings that are way more important. Even with the dry land around us, his presence and provision bless us. When God is first in our life, we can persevere during trials because we know God's with us. God has a plan. I can persevere and trust. We've already seen that God's favor can bring opposition and envy from the world. In Isaac's case, it was with the Philistines. And while they might be envious, it was impossible for them to ignore the power of God. Isaac's enemies recognized the might and power of the God of Isaac. So they came seeking a covenant of peace so he wouldn't harm them. And what does Isaac do? Get out of here. You made my life miserable. No. He just says, oh, I'm surprised you're here. Why are you here? You don't like me. <laughs> he lets them come. He kindly enters into a covenant of peace with those who had opposed him. And he makes them a feast. And God brought them peace. It made me think of Psalm 23 where David says to the Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 16, 7, write that down. It's not in your verse sheet. When a man's ways please the Lord, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. What a great promise. In that peace, there is triumph over our enemies. And our hope would be we can triumph over their souls as well. If they're recognizing God in our life, 
Maybe we can lead them to that God. When God is first in our life, we are a testimony of his goodness for the world to see. And when God is first in our life, we will triumph over worldly antagonism. Peace is our triumph. First comes the altar. First comes God over people, over things, over money, over plans, over your success. He must be first to live in his constant blessing. It doesn't mean we will never sin or slip or fail. It just means we're building a life based on our relationship with God. And when God is first, good things follow. Look at Isaiah 33. And he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I love the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Let me close with one verse. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, My treasure thou art. Let me pray. Lord, we praise you for your goodness. May we walk in it and reflect it to others. In Christ's name, amen.